Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Mets team podcast. And uh, this is the 35th episode, official episode of the Mets team podcast, and we're so thankful that you can join us and commiserate in uh, what was not really all that good of a weekend against the uh, Braves after taking on the Tribe pretty soundly. So without further ado, let me bring on uh, featured guests as well as my co-conspirators of the podcast. We'll start with Mike LaColant in Bensonhurst. What's going on, Mike? Hello, my friend. Ready for another another podcast of Mets Baseball. That it is. And, uh, you know, there's not all hope, of course, is never lost in one of these things. And uh, it looks like some of the other teams lost. But uh, Rick Sparago of Connecticut, you know, the Mets need to, uh, you know, they're it's, if they keep losing this way, they're not going to get lucky. No, they. Um, it's one of two things, Sam, in my mind. You know, you, you could look at it as opportunity lost, um, or you could take the positive spin, which is, okay, you got swept by a team that, let's face it, is better than you are, and you're still right there. So you, you can look at it either of two ways, and um, I am on the fence. I'm not sure how I'm reading this at this point. Uh, neither am I, uh, and so we're going to get into it tonight with uh, Mets Marides, Mets Daddy, a.k.a. John. John, I always forget exactly where uh, uh, John is from. I am originally from the island, but I am <laughs> Ah, I see. Okay, there you go. Uh, could you could you repeat that uh, for, for, I think you were cutting out for me. Oh, my apologies. Uh, I'm originally from the island, but now I'm uh, for reasons I wish didn't happen. <laughs> no. We don't need to be getting into that right now. Uh, but but no. John, <laughs> uh, well, let's get right into it. Why do you think the the biggest reason the Mets lost this weekend? Because it's the Braves. I, I'm I'm only half kidding. I mean, I don't know if anyone else had this. My I thought back to 1998, Mel Rojas. Uh, I also remember Chipper Jones kind of chiding the Mets fans the following year, saying, you know, I guess it's time for all the Mets fans to go find their Yankee gear. Um, I, I hesitate to say that this race team is just better than the Mets. Um, 
I could be wrong. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think these teams are fairly equal. Um, I, you know what? When you boil it down, it's just the little things. Um, it's Billy Hamilton's first base because Eddie Davis is a terrible left fielder. It's the Braves signed Josh Donaldson uh, in the offseason, and the Mets have stuck with Todd Frazier. Um, it, it, you know what? It's one of those things sometimes it, does, it can sound like donation. I just look at it. They're the Braves, they're the Mets. Important August-September series, this is the way it's going to go. That, that, that's just my look at it. You know, Rich, I think the Mets have made serious strides with their offense and, and their dynamic uh, in many places uh, up and down the line. I think right now you're seeing a Braves team whose offense is just from one through nine, and might as well include the pitcher there sometimes. Uh, it's just a better over overall uh, uh, thing going on. Whereas, you know, uh, at certain spots, the Mets pitcher is going to be basically the best from five to nine. I think that that is, you know, little moves like John said with Billy Hamilton go a long way. Well, you know, it's interesting. When the Braves are healthy, they have a better offense than Mets. They have the better – they have the second-best offense in the National League when they have Marcakis, when they have McCann. But this weekend they did not. You know, when I was at the game last night, I'm looking at the averages on the board, and 6, 7, and 8, I believe the highest average among them was 220. Ortega's below the Mendoza line. Cervelli was below the Mendoza line. And um, and Hechevarria is, is just above 200, like around 210, 220. So the Mets played a Braves team that could be beaten, and they did not beat them. And And to follow up on something John said, you know, the difference in talent on the teams is, is not big. It's not. The difference to me is everything John said. It's the Braves do the little things correctly. And not only do they do the little things correctly on the field, but when the Braves identified a need, Marcakis is out, Billy Hamilton's available, we're going to snatch this guy up. Oops, McCann is out. Cervelli, a guy who's been, you know, been in the postseason, not the, he certainly – Way past his prime, but he was out there. We'll take him too. They pounce like like a snake in the in the grass when there's an opportunity. The Mets do not, and that is a that to me is one of the biggest differences between the two teams. Yes, they do the little things on the field, like last night the vapor lock by J.D. Davis, and all of that. Yeah, that's not acceptable. But further than that, it's the fact that a team is so focused on winning. They see a way to improve themselves, if only marginally, and they capitalize. They pounce. The Mets do not. And, and this has been one of the more frustrating experiences to me um, in a while. You know, I, I think Billy Hamilton made a lot of sense for this team for a lot of reasons. You know, we can get into them later maybe, but I think he made a lot of sense. I think Cervelli made sense. You know, Rene Rivera, we all love Rene Rivera, but Rene Rivera is what he is. 36-year-old backup catcher who hadn't played in the major leagues in two years. Cervelli was out there. Mets don't do anything. And the, in the waiver process, the Mets are way ahead of the Braves. They could have gotten these guys. So, anyway, that's my take on it. Mike, you know, I think uh, everybody's kind of just on point with this. Uh, 
it's it's just the little things. That's the bottom line, and it's not just the little things you're doing on the field. You know, moving a, a runner over here, uh, getting the, uh, the the extra base over there. Uh, we're also talking about really solidifying this roster, and the Mets have you know let's not completely say they haven't done that going down the stretch. It's just they haven't done enough. All of their fundamental flaws are certainly on display against the Braves. And, you know, you could throw in Azdrubal Cabrera. You could throw in Echevarria along with Cervelli and Allison in, in, in transactions that this general manager did not make and, you know, this competitor did. Uh, you can go that way. But if we're just talking baseball here uh, and we're talking the Braves series, I'll put this one squarely on the offense. Uh, the pitching was there, except for a hiccup here and a hiccup there. Uh, the pitching has been there. Uh, they've pitched very well over the last six games. Uh, but in this series in particular, uh, you know, they were 24 for 115, which equates to a 209 batting average, a team batting average. Uh, they only drew seven walks through the three games and struck out 29 times. They were four for 25 with runners in scoring position. That's a buck 60. You know, Frazier, Conforto, Ligaris, Opa, forget about it, among others. So the pitching was there. The offense was not, if we're just talking baseball. You know, they came off the Cleveland series. They outscored them 15-5 to five for a plus-10 differential. They play the Braves, and they get outscored 13-7, a minus-6 differential. And I, I, I'll continue to insist the pitching was there. Perhaps a little taxed over the last six games, but it was still effective for the most part. Uh, and I said last podcast, you know, the Mets will be as successful as their matchup against the Atlanta Braves and the Philadelphia Philly goes. And here you are. They just got swept. You know, is Cleveland a good team? Yeah, I guess. Sure. The season ended today. They're a playoff team. But I don't care. They don't play in my division, nor do they play in my league. Atlanta does. You know, so let's continue. John, do you think that the offense hit a wall or just better greatest pitcher than the Indians are? It's pretty tough to say that the Braves pitching is better than the Indians pitching, um, especially with Atlanta's noted bullpen issues. Um, I just keep going back to this. Sometimes one team has your number, and it just seems like this Braves team has the next number. You know, I don't know if it was the Mets offense looking at those hideous black uniforms. Maybe they felt embarrassed in their even worse white uniforms. Um, But it just seems when they face the Braves this year, they're a different team than they are against everyone else. I mean, this is the second straight series. The Mets just played with the Braves. And it was just a mistake here, a stupid thing. I mean, the Mets have lost five or six from the Braves in the last two series 
swept or beat the tar out of everyone else. And they could have beaten the Braves in all six of these games. And they only pulled out with one victory. You know, sorry, I, you know, I don't know where to, you know, I don't know where to pinpoint. I mean, am I, you know, obviously the person you want to point fingers at first is Todd Frazier. Todd Frazier has been awful lately. Uh, and that's coming from me, who is probably his biggest proponent and defender coming into this season. Um, I remember talking about this with you guys earlier. Um, Todd Frazier was terrible, but he wasn't so terrible as to cost this team anything. Um, you know, while McGarth continued to hit, panic, you know, did the things. I mean, if you want to pinpoint one thing, I think until today, J.D. Davis didn't play very well in this series. Um, but I'm not going to put it on him either. Nobody played really outstandingly well. I mean, I mean, Alonzo had the double today. He had the homer yesterday. But, you know, nobody really did anything. Um, I don't think Conforto did much either. Um, I'd have to dig through the numbers, but maybe there's something to the fact that the Braves threw two lefties at the Mets, too. You know, Max Breed and Dallas Cycle. Maybe this when we peel everything back, this is a Mets team that's just not hitting left-handed hitters, left-handed pitchers left. Um, you know, I, I, it, sometimes it's just hard to pinpoint other than, these, like I said earlier, these are the Mets, these are the Braves. It, it's been this way since they created this format in 1995 when both teams are good, the Braves just going to continuously um, not just beat the Mets, they're going to just beat them in the most humiliating fashion possible, and they're going to destroy the Mets. And, you know, uh, I go back to, like, you know, Mel Rojas and then Kenny Rogers. Um, there's so many moments between these two teams. Um, Chipper Jones, Brian Jordan, um, and now we have Josh Donaldson, Freddie Freeman, Ronald Acuna. Um, the Mets aren't hitting them. I, I, my only guess is because of the Braves. Because the Mets hit the Braves, the Phoenix pitching pitchers much better. And you know what? They're going to face the Cubs, and they actually they beat they they start hitting the Cubs pitching, which is arguably better than the Mets pitching. Um, and what we were on the topic earlier, you know, about Billy Hamilton, the Cubs did it. Craig Kimbrell, I bet they're happy they have them while the Mets are cycling through the Jacob Brains and. Uh, you know, flexions, and uh, I saw Chris Bosley was up again. That was awe-inspiring. Um, no, I, I I think the point mostly is whatever it is the Braves do, they do it better to the Mets than every other team in baseball. And it, I think that's just the answer. I think the Braves just have their hands. And we may see that because I think the Mets are going to do very well against the Cubs in the next year. I'm going to be very interested to get into the Cubs later, and we have a very special guest, uh, my friend Megan Bungarov, coming on to talk about the Cubs later on. And But just want to unpack there. Uh, I especially want to talk about the hideous uniforms, but we don't need to get right into that. Because um, first I want to kind of talk about, and I'll, I'll go to you first with this, Mike. You just brought up kind of like this 
intergenerational example of the Mets always just doing enough to get by while everybody else is consistently doing their best to be better. Um, I think you understand where I'm coming from with this, Mike. Roll with it. Uh, Perhaps, you know, there's an argument to be made on Brody's behalf when he says that he believes the in-house options are somewhat better than what was available to him. Uh, I guess he's talking about Brandon Nimmo, the return of McNeil. Uh, I guess Jed Larry, you know, scuttlebutt is, he's around the corner. So if you want to believe that, you know, there's that narrative. Uh, but, again, there are transactions, there are bodies for them that we mentioned already that really came back to really bite the Mets in the ass, especially the other day. Uh, but, Sam, I will continue to pound the off. Uh, you know, there's the micro and there's the macro. And I'm going to keep my attention on these last three games, and I'm going to continue to pound the offense. Because when you go back to game one, Jacob deGrom, the bullpen matched him pitch for pitch. Yet Jacob deGrom is the only Met player to score a run on a home run. deGrom threw seven pitches, uh, seven innings, bullpen threw seven innings. deGrom gave up four hits, bullpen gave up four hits. deGrom allowed one earned run, bullpen allowed one earned run. DeGrom struck out 13 batters. The bullpen struck out 13 batters. But they can only generate one run throughout the whole damn game, 14 innings, and it came from their starting pitcher. Yeah, Rich, I mean, unfortunately, the well dried up here with uh, those big hits that they were getting with, uh, you know, so many walk-off wins that we've seen recently. Well, yeah, they did, Sam. And, you know, I, I was – and that that's part of the problem is the Mets were relying on those magical moments. And, and those are great. I mean, they're, they get you out of your seat. You go nuts. They're fun. But those magical moments generally stop at some point, right? And, and what it comes down to is – and I'll go back to what we've been talking about. What it go, comes down to, especially at this time of the year – is are you executing the little things? Because the teams that are playing for something now, let's face it, the talent differential between the teams playing for something now, it's marginal. It really is. What it comes down to is how well are these teams prepared? How well are they executing the little things? You know, I've been reflecting on what John was saying earlier. I've been trying to come up with something, and here's what I've come up with. If Maybe he's right. Maybe the Braves have the Mets number for a reason. And what would that reason be? Hear me out on this one. You know, the Mets played the Indians. The Mets played um, – the Mets have beaten Kansas City. Of course, they should be beating Kansas City. All these teams they've beaten. But, but think about what the Braves do. The Braves have – they certainly can slug, but they do those things. They do the kinds of things that the Mets' vaunted pitching staff maybe can't stop as effectively as traditional offense. The, the Braves do things like they go the other way. They, they're excellent base runners, um, not necessarily, I'm not talking about speed, I'm talking about smart base runners. They throw to the right base, they make those defensive plays. You know, look, look what happened when, um, when uh, the guy who was playing shortstop helped me out. What was the guy's name that they sent down and they picked up Petrovia? Right, they, they couldn't pick up they, the, um, the switch hitter. Anyway, the guy, they played, when they played them in Atlanta, the guy playing shortstop. 
He's uh, killed the Mets last year, and his name escapes me. But they, they got rid of him and picked up Echeverria. But the Braves – right, thank you, Yohan Camargo. Um, the Braves do these things. They do the kinds of things that the Mets just are not suited to stop. You know, the, the Braves execute every little thing on defense, every little thing on offense. Think about who the Mets are. The Mets are a great pitching team with magical, timely hitting. Well, you know what? Maybe that formula against a team that grinds it out, is fundamentally sound, plays good defense. Look at the defense we saw today. I mean, Albies made some great plays. Look at the defense we saw all weekend. You know, um, maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe the Braves have the Mets number. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not just something that um, is cosmic. Maybe there's a real reason. And what I'm coming up with, and I, guys, please comment, is if you think about who the Mets are and the way they win, and think about who the Braves are and how the Braves beat the Mets, maybe the Mets' business model just doesn't align well to what the Braves do. That, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still stuck on this thing. I think it comes down to Billy Hamilton. The Mets would rather go down with Aaron Altair than get yep. Billy Hamilton. And who was the key player who beat the Mets in the series? Billy Hamilton was the guy. He had the game-winning hit, and then he had another hit the next day. You know, and he's out there running all over the place. He was Billy Hamilton had the game-winning hit in the 14th inning, and then the next day, he scores from first base. You want to talk about the difference in the team? Right there. The Nets would rather, on the back end of their roster, have guy after guy after guy who hasn't been in the major leagues for two years, hasn't had a good season in five years, and meanwhile, the Braves are like, you know what, we, we want to win the World Series, so we're going to get Billy Hamilton, who's going to play elite defense, He's going to be able to score from first base because you got uh, a DH playing in left field. The Braves want it more. And it's organizationally, not the players, but it's organizational. The Braves picking up Billy Hamilton is just symbolic for everything that separates these two teams. I, I, John, I cannot agree with you more. I, I mean, seriously. And I think you and I exchanged a little bit on Twitter on this. Any game Aaron Althair plays, you're saying to yourself, look, we know we have a dead spot on our roster. And I'll even add in, any game Ruben Tejada plays, you're saying we have another dead spot. We'll play with 23 guys because, I don't know, we don't want to pay Hamilton, or, or I'm not sure if that is even the reason, but we're not going to pick up Hamilton. We're not going to get through. We're not going to do these things. We're, just, we're going to go with 23. We know these guys really aren't major leaguers. Well, you know what? That's not cool. That's not okay. It's not okay when you're in a pennant race. Or the fact that they might have let Danny Echeverria go for $1 million, but they had to pay the next year. Sure. I'll just send them just on that one, because Guillaume has been great, and it was him or Guillaume. And I think Guillaume has proven his worth on that. But I, I think the greater issue globally is, yeah, I mean, they cut Carlos Gomez under the same circumstance, and you cut Gomez to get Altair, who's been worse. So, you know, they may have gotten bailed out by Guillaume's play, but I don't think anyone here or anywhere really thinks it was Echeverria who was cut 
for anything other than a million dollars. Right. And to Rich's yeah. point, you know, to Rich's point, the Atlanta Braves, we're talking about an organization that committed wholeheartedly to a rebuild and doing it the right way, not half-assed. I mean, this ownership, let's face it, has been afraid to do that. Uh, they're, they're stuck in win-now mode, and they're, they're wholly dependent on this gate receipt. So, you know, their motivations are and different. you know, it's funny, Rich, because you could say that even when they modestly committed to a rebuild from 2011 to 2014, um, you know, they, there's still something about them that they're trying to sell that magic. The underdog shirts, 2012. I mean, they they almost had us in 2012 too, and you know, unfortunately had a miserable post All Star break, which is much too familiar. Um, luckily, now in general they seem to start uh, playing better in the second half of most of these seasons for for uh, quite some time now, really. Um, but you know, even during that modest rebuild of the Sandy Alderson era, there's still something about the Wilpons that they can't commit. It's, they, they literally rebuild only in August and September. Yeah, um, and, and I think that that situation is not going to change for a lot of reasons. Number one, we all know one of them. You know, if you play in town with the Yankees and you're rebuilding and the Yankees are, you know, winning – 110 games, well, you know, you're going to look pretty bad. That's one thing. And, th- and another thing which I think complicates it now is Mets actually have a good core. You know, they, they have a core of young players, McNeil, Alonzo, you know, I'll throw J.D. Davis in. He has his value in, in different ways. The pitching staff, you know, they, they've Rosario, of course, Conforto. You know, they've got guys that it almost – it almost doesn't make sense to rebuild, right? Because you, you do have a good young core that you want to take advantage of while they're under control. And the, and now the question becomes, well, you know, you, we, we're really not all that good. We should rebuild. I think that question's off the table. The question is, you're really close to good enough. I mean, your young core can compete with anybody's young core. What are you going to do around the young core to make to, to go all in on winning? And that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the difference between the organizations we saw on the field the last three days. The Braves are all in on winning. They will do. They will scrap and claw their way to do anything to win, and you just don't get that feeling from the Mets, and and that's where it is. And it, and you know if they if they don't capitalize in this window of having this staff, which is of course is getting to the end of, of controllability. Um, if they don't capitalize on that and these young guys being around too, I mean, they really have something to work with. But if they don't go all in on this thing, it's going to be a wasted opportunity like this weekend was. John, you know, I go back to a word. It was either you or somebody in the whole roster said uh, preparedness. And I've been wondering most of the season how prepared Mickey Calloway gets these players. And I don't want to nitpick considering that, you know, they've had quite the turnaround. But at the same time, are we seeing that come up sometimes with how prepared is Mickey and how prepared is Mickey getting the players? 
I, in terms of preparing the player, the thing I look at over Callaway's tenure, I think he does do a very good job getting the players prepared to play and getting improved. And the things I look at in on that front, I see Ahmed Rosario going from someone who you would even say was a bust to someone who's emerging as one of the best shortstops in baseball. Um, Pete Alonzo was a guy who couldn't play first base. And all of a sudden, him, our, our, our knock on him on defense right now is, you know, maybe he shouldn't be playing second base, going into the second base hole to make plays. Um, I, I do think he's getting his players prepared to play. Um, but and I say this as someone who thinks some of the knocks on Callaway have been a bit overboard, um, especially since we, we know, I think the last time I was on, we were talking about Brody texting in lineup decisions and when to remove people from games. There were a lot of curious moves, especially in this series, that I didn't get, like today. The Mets had a rally going, and they didn't pinch hit Wilson Ramos for Rene Rivera. Um, and I, you know, I, I got the move, but Jerry Familia on a third day instead of a fresh arm for selection. Um, Bunting Ahmed Rosario um, when he's your best hitter, you know, arguably in the second half, or, you know, overreacting to that completely messing up and asking for Joe Panic for a hit block. Um, I don't know if the moment got too big for everyone, especially Callaway, um, but it did seem he, he had a lot of bad, just flat-out bad moves in this series. And when the teams are this close together in terms of talent and everything, this is where you can really see the difference in the manager really playing out. And I just think things along the lines of not pinching for Rainer Rara. Oh, on that front, too, um, the one thing, as an aside, that really bothered me from this weekend was what they did with Tomas Nito. He gets hit in the backswing from Donaldson. He goes to the ground, writhing in agony. And then they let him finish the inning, and then they take him in the dugout, and then they do the concussion protocol. And then they go, oh, well, he had concussions, let's remove him from the game. Um, there just seems to be, like, the moment's too big for everybody right now. And when you have a leader in Callaway where it may not, it may be too big for him, and it's too big, and say what you want about Riverman. Riverman has never won a thing in baseball. Maybe it's too big for Riggleman and Luis Rojas and everyone not named Phil Regan. Uh, there just seems to be just that split second off top to bottom, and honestly, that's like at the top of Callaway. Do I think he prepared his players for the game? Yes, but I don't think they're ready for They weren't ready for this series. 
this series is too big for everybody in that clubhouse, especially Calvin. You know, Mike, I, you know, sometimes you wonder, like, why is it that Conforto keeps resorting to being strikeout prone when you get into these hot streaks in, in good, nice little spurts, and then you get to a series like this? I think, you know, Mickey's coming off of uh, Mickey. Mickey's coming off of basically sweeping his protege. Uh, do you think anything that that John said about the moment being too big uh, has legs? I'm no Callaway apologist, but maybe it's just my mood today. But good players render managers irrelevant. That's my answer. At some point, you got to put performance on the table and let it speak for itself, or lack thereof. You know, yeah. Beware of Mickey. He'll do some strange things along the way that'll likely piss us off. But I don't think he'll be the determining factor as to whether the Mets make the playoffs or not. Good players, good play, teamwork, render managers inconsequential. I, you know what? I'll, I'll take it a step further. I'll, I'll use these last six games as an example and his bullpen usage. You know, we all want him using Diaz less and, and putting him in less precarious situations. Well, let's look at the rundown. Wilson, over the last six games, four appearances. Avila, four appearances. Seawolf, four appearances. Familia, three. Brock, three. Lugo, two. Diaz, two. Flexen, one. So he's doing the things we want him to do with regards to the bullpen. You know, lineups are another issue. But I'll say this one last time. Good players render managers irrelevant. Rich, does it come down to simply that? Or, I mean, don't you think that, you know, a particular motivator could be the difference sometimes? Well, you know, um, is the moment too big for Mickey? I don't know. But but you have to wonder, right? It's fair to say that because he's never been in this situation before. Riggleman isn't exactly the most successful manager either. He hasn't been down this path often. Um, and I'm not sure how much help he's given Mickey all year anyway. Um, I'll point to a move from last night's game. You know, Mets go ahead on that incredibly dramatic home run by Alonzo and then the worst possible thing happens. Wheeler gives it right back, 5-5, okay. Mets get the Braves out in the 6th and 7th, or in the 7th, and bottom of the 7th, McNeil leads off with the double, and then he's got Rosario bunting. Now, Mike, you and I have talked about this. I'm a huge fan of small ball. I am. Even I was appalled by that. I was appalled by Rosario bunting there. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, it's like the guy is, is one of the hottest hitters in baseball since the All-Star break. Have some faith in the guy. Try to try to put a hurting on the Braves there. Try to score a few runs. It's not the bottom of the ninth. I'd be okay with the bunt maybe in the bottom of the ninth. It's not the bottom of the ninth. You have to try to put a couple of runs up there because the Braves are not going to go away. They're not going to 
pack their tent and run away. You have to try to really open that game up. And, and when I see stuff like that, I see a guy who's kind of nervous. You know, he, he's playing for one run in the seventh inning of the game and with a really hot hitter up. It just made no sense. So, you know, I don't know. Whitey Herzog once said, I, I can't win any games for my team, but I can certainly lose them some. And and I think that is true. I mean, Mike, I you know, of course what you're saying is, is accurate. You know, great players, like I'm watching the Yankees as we speak, Great players like these guys. I mean, you know, they'll 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 cover for Boone if Boone makes a few mistakes throughout the course of the year. I'm not sure the Mets have enough talent to do that. And I think whether the moment's too big for Mickey or or whatever it is, I, I do think he could get in the way of this thing coming down the stretch. It's just some of this stuff has been curious. It really has. Did anybody was anybody else really bothered by the Rosario bunt in the bottom of the seventh last night, or is it just me? I agree with you. Yeah. Vivid. I I I I I think broken remote going in. Oh jeez. Oh, <laughs> it was already broken there. That's what, that, that's my throwing remote. <laughs> well, I I uh, certainly do not like the move. He's just been absolutely destroying the baseball and destroying the opposition, and they don't seem to be able to get through him. And it also takes that particular player out of his rhythm if he's asked to do something that where he could be more successful in, in other places, uh, especially when the play doesn't end up successful. So um, there's all these different factors that just don't make any sense. And um, I uh, I guess I'll just go round robin, you know. If, if the Mets don't make the playoffs, does Mickey Calloway come back next year, Rich? No way. No way in hell. Um, I think that, he was on a short lease from the very beginning. We all know why. We all know. Look when Frank Cashin became general manager and Tory, you know, was was in the dugout. You knew Tory was going to eventually go. It's just the way it goes. It happens everywhere. Um, if they don't make the playoffs, Callaway doesn't make it till the Friday of of the week of this of the season ending. Um, if they do make the playoffs, if they do make the wild card game and get bounced out, I still think he goes. I think the only way Callaway stays is if they make a run to at least the NLCS for the reasons we've talked about on this podcast for a long time. He's not Brody's guy. Bro, and we all know Brody likes his guys, right? There has to be somebody that Brody has in mind. And Callaway would have to pull a rabbit out of his hat to, to maintain a job for next year, in my opinion. Mike? Well, Callaway has Fred Wilpon on his side, and that says a lot. Uh, but given his option, I believe Brody would rather have his own guy in place. Uh, if they don't make the playoffs, I believe Mickey will be out. If they do make the playoffs, I still think Mickey will be out. John, I think it matters how they miss out. I mean, are we talking 1998, um, complete meltdown over the last week? Or are we talking bearing it to the end? Um, I mean, I come back to this. Jeff Wilton wanted Mickey Callaway to stay. That was a uh, condition precedent for anyone coming in for the job. They'll say it wasn't. Okay, no. um, the Wiltons won't take Billy Hamilton to help push them over the top, but I'm supposed to believe the Mets are going to pay two managers. Um, I, 
I, I don't, I don't, unless there's a complete meltdown end of the year, I don't see it happening. Um, the other reason why is the thing that Mickey Calloway does really well that nobody talks about is he's a really good punching bag. Instead of talking about um, anything, anything, all people talk about are the continual gaps Mickey Calloway has in his post-game and pre-game press conferences. Um, I, I think people like to gleefully jump on him to a certain extent. Mickey Calloway is a really good barrier between Brody Van Wagen and, and uh, Jeff Wolfson. I think they like having that shield. Um, so if they have any justification to keep Mickey Calloway, um, to keep someone who's been a good human shield, and to keep, you know, somebody who's going to take text messages from Brody during the game and execute his mood as opposed to doing, I don't know, the intelligent thing. Um, and if they don't have to pay two people for one job, I I, I am still in the position they're going to hold on to Callaway unless they're really forced. And I think the next, you know, month plus of the season is going to be the determining factor on that. There's a lot to look forward to going down the stretch one way or the other, uh, Rich. It's, it's uh, this is this is going to be an interesting off season one way or the other, and and you know because Mickey's team has now found himself in a place that he was never in this late in, into the season last last year, and this is there's a lot of pressure on on, on him right now to to show that he can manage this team in New York right now. Yeah, you're right. You're right, and. Um... The one thing about Mickey, in addition to being a punching bag, good point, and that is valuable for in any organization, right, uh, but especially with the Mets. And, but I think the other thing, too, is there's no question that the players like him and, and the players play hard for him. Um, you, you don't hear anybody, you know, uh, talking about him behind his back. You know, you don't hear any of that. He's definitely a player's manager. I think it could be because, you know, he's a fairly young man himself. He relates to, uh, to you know to these guys, and and they definitely have his back, and he has theirs, and that's great. Now, will that level of motivation? And he did keep the clubhouse together when things were you know going to to hell in a handbasket when they were 11 under, and he somehow was able to see them through and keep them motivated or whatever they had to do, um, you know, to get back to where they are now. So those are all positive things. But you're right, Sam. The next five weeks will be a test, and Mickey will be in the spotlight. The moves he makes will be that much more magnified and amplified. And if the scuttlebutt becomes too much, if they don't make the playoffs that you know, geez, his bullpen management down the stretch was awful, and why was he doing this? Why was he doing that? If all of that becomes something people could point to, especially in the media, and say, you know, he he really seemed to not be the man for the job. He's I think I think he's gone anyway, but I really think it'll all be magnified and he'd be out really quickly if that does happen. And I think it could happen. I really do. Yeah, it it's going to be uh, certainly interesting to see what happens because you know, um, Mike, it doesn't seem that any manager ever comes out of the job 
on the National League side of New York with a managerial career on the other end of getting fired. I'm sorry, you were breaking up. I, I didn't quite make that up. You know, I said that um, it's going to be certainly interesting to say the least, and nobody ever seems to come out of uh, this gig on the National League New York side of things with a managerial career in text. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, it, it's a tough job. I, I'll, I'll grant you that. I will say this, Sam, and to everybody listening. I, you know, I have a much shorter leash than perhaps Rich. I think these next 12 games will define this season. It's going to either make or break them. Three games against the Cubs, three against Philly, three against Washington, then three against Philly. That's what's going to make their season because Rich used the word before, controllability. All their controllability lies within these next four series and these next three teams. They don't have games against Milwaukee. They don't have games against St. Louis. So all their controllability is right here, right before them. After which, you know, if they negotiate these next four series successfully, uh, you know, then we can start talking about meaningful games, you know, per se against the Dodgers down the way. And perhaps those those final three games against the Braves again uh, might mean something as well. But their season lies before them right here, right now. And it starts with the Cubs and it ends with the Phillies, against which they have a losing record against. So their season is now, these 12 games. That's the way I see it. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, uh, you know, they really need to regain their composure going up against the Cubs, John. I mean, it's it's uh, it's do or die right now after getting swept. I mean, you know, any goodwill you, you grew – by winning three against the uh, the tribe, have been completely erased. Yeah, um, I know it, it's a good point. I mean, you you go from a three and zero, you know, start, and now you're at five hundred, and now the success of this home stand is going to be tied now directly to this incoming series. But um, you know, if you look at how everything has shaken out. The Mets went into this series two games out in the boss column. They got swept by the Braves, and guess what? They're two games out in the loss column still. Um, but now it's even better because the team that's directly ahead of them is the Chicago Cubs. This, more than anything, is their moment. You know, I know this is a tough stretch of games, you know, um, they still have tough games after this. Um, but right now, if you think about this. If you sweep the Cubs, if you're the Mets and you sweep the Cubs, you will now have a spot in the postseason if the season ended, you know, at on, what is it, Thursday night. You can't ask to be in a better position, especially with after you come out of August, start to have somewhat of a safer landing um, when you start dealing with, you know, other teams. Uh, like, I, I think it's the Reds and the Rockies. 
Um, you know, but one other thing we're not necessarily talking about, too, in terms of this is the Mets still have the Dodgers coming up. They just face the break. Uh, it's a one thing to, to face off against the Cubs and beat the Cubs in a series or, you know, beat whoever else they're going to face, beat the Phillies or beat the Nationals. If this is a team, you know, who's going to win the World Series, they're going to have to go through the Dodgers. They're probably going to have to go through the Braves, too, once they get past the Dodgers. Um, you know, at a certain point, this turns into, this is open fun, but what's the next step? Can the Mets actually We know they can be in the thickest things now, but is this a team who can actually compete? I don't know. That's the thing. I know this is fun. I don't know that this is a team who can compete at the end of the day. And, um, like, go back to 2016. Does anyone really have a fond memory of how all that season shook out? I mean, I know it was a great run, but I just still have the most bitter taste in my mouth for how that season ended. Um, and I don't know if that this is where this is going, whether it's a wild card game loss or just being completely and utterly dominated in an NLPF by a team who they just aren't nowhere near on the level no matter how good they're picking. I mean, I have, I have good memories of 2016 because I broke my clavicle during that run and just remember, you know, watching baseball the whole time and seeing the Mets do some awesome things. Uh, so that's that's one of the reasons why I kind of keep 2016 fond to my heart anyway. Uh, but the Mets' next test uh, are the Chicago Cubs, and without further ado, I am going to welcome on my friend, uh, Megan Bungaroff, who is a essay writer and magazine editor, TV program to give us a little rundown on the Cubs. What's going on, Megan? Hi, um, and not too much. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, first of all, you know, give us your shameless plug. I, I don't want to go any further without <laughs> hearing all of uh, everywhere that everybody can find you. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a, a writer and an editor, like you said, and so I'm. You know, I guess you could you could follow me on Twitter or Instagram. It's just Megan Bungaroth if you can figure out how to spell it. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me and anything that I write. And uh, just to clarify, because there was some confusion prior to the podcast, you were not a Cubs beat reporter. That is correct. No, <laughs> you do not that's write right. about Cubs, but you 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 have grown very fond of the Cubs over the last few years. And, and so if you can just give us a little rundown about how you reached into Cubs fandom. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't a huge baseball fan prior to moving to Chicago. Actually, I lived in New York and I was a casual Yankees fan, uh, a big Brooklyn Cyclones fan for sure. And, um, I moved to Chicago in 2015, and we ended up moving very close to Wrigley Field. It's about 20 minutes away. Started going to a lot of games because they're right there and can get cheap tickets. And uh, it also just was a way for me to make friends in Chicago, um, have something to talk about with people. So I started going to games and then just got really into uh, following the Cubs. And so 
I've just become a huge fan. I watch most games and uh, go to as many games as I can. And, uh, yeah, I would call myself like a I'm, – I'm a very interested fan. I might not know all the history, but I'm continuing to learn it. And um, really, I just love following it. And, of course, you know, it helps that they were good, of course, when, when I started following in 2015. But I'm, I'm a fan for life now, so all the ups and downs I'll take. There you go. And, and of course, there's always been a lot of downs generally, but, of course, you got to see a world championship. So coming out of that, that's, that's about, you know, three years removed now. Uh, where do the Cubs stand as they come into the series against the New York Mets? Yeah, so you're, you guys are going to be seeing the Cubs at a kind of an interesting time, I think, and a, a really crucial time for the Cubs. I was listening a bit to um, you're saying I think it's a crucial time for the Mets too. So this will be an interesting series. The Cubs have been um, – they've really suffered on the road. Their road record is, is not great. Um, they've, they've been doing, you know, conversely really well at Wrigley, but today we had a really painful um, series ender with the Nationals. We were swept at home. Um, they went 11 innings today and still lost. So um, I think the Cubs are going to be looking to recover from that. They have off, you know, tomorrow and then start the series, you know, in New York on Tuesday. Um, and I would say that overall this season with the Cubs is they've they've got the components they need. They have, you know, the starting pitching, sometimes the bullpen, sometimes the offense. And what's been happening is they've been a little streaky and, and sometimes one of those components will falter. Um, but then the other one will, will work and, or the other two will work. So I think the Cubs need to figure out if they can get all of those elements activated at the same time, they're pretty formidable. Um, but if they can't, then that's what's tough. So um, going into Tuesday, I think what's interesting is that you Darvish is pitching and he's having an amazing second half of the season. So um, I actually, I read today, uh, he's apparently the first pitcher in MLB history to have five straight outings of at least eight strikeouts and zero walks. So you can take that for whatever it's worth, but it's an interesting time um, because he's really, he's kind of on fire right now. So it'll be a good series opener, I think. Are there any names on the Cubs right now that the the Mets fan might not uh, be too familiar with coming into the series? Uh, that that we might need to be looking out for. Oh yeah, um, well that's a great question. I mean, we have a few uh, new additions to the team. Um, Nick Castellanos, who was from the Tigers, he got him from the Tigers, I think, and um, he's been offensively really great. Um, nice to see some new blood on the team, and he's really performed well. Um, so he might not be as familiar to Mets fans. Um, you know, I think that there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of, um, great talent on the team that people probably are familiar with. Um, unfortunately, uh, Wilson Contreras is still on the IL, so he's not going to be playing, but we have a new, um, catcher, Jonathan Lucroy, and, um, I think it's Jonathan, but, um, yeah, those are some new faces. And then in terms of pitching, I, I, I think the lineup is going to be you Darvish, and then it looks like Kyle Hendricks and um, John Lester. So those are also sort of familiar Cubs. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's yeah. sort of the lineup. And then also Anthony Rizzo's a question mark. He's um, he had to exit a game recently with back tightness, so that will definitely have an impact on on the Cubs. I think whether he can play or not. Okay, awesome. Uh, I won't, we're going to go around the horn now to see if any of the other guys have some questions, and we're going to start with Rich Sparago. Rich, what's going on? Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. And um, so with regard to the Cubs, uh, they obviously got a nice shot in the arm from Craig Kimbrell. I believe his first couple of outings weren't so good, but he's been pretty dominant since. So, um, But beyond Kimbrell, mm-hmm. I, I think when, it, when you have playoff contending teams going at it late in the season, it does come down to bullpens. So yeah. can you talk to us a little bit about Kimbrell and then what's behind Kimbrell in the, in the Chicago bullpen? Oh yeah, no, I can I can definitely try. Um, I think uh, you're absolutely right that Kimbrel. It was really exciting to get him. He did have a bit of a a struggle, and then he was um, he was on the injured list for a, a short stint until recently. So he's been strong since then. I mean, even today he pitched um, uh, a great inning, but then they, like I said earlier, they went eleven innings and you know he couldn't couldn't get the save um but you know behind Kimbrell it's a little bit shakier um we've got Steve Deshek who also had spent some time on the IL recently um and uh Tyler Chatwood who is sometimes great he can get shaken up pretty easily I would say and uh Hmm. Uh, other than that, in the bullpen, I mean, there's, it's been um, stringing together a lot of different bullpen pitchers. Has been when that works, that works great. But I don't think there's any ace in the bullpen for the Cubs, to be honest. Aside from Kimbrel, um, and I mean, he's really the closer. But uh, yeah, Pedro Strope has been uh, hot and cold as well. So, you know, that's sort of. It's a little bit of a holding your breath um, as a Cubs fan sometimes when the when the bullpen um, comes in. So I definitely think that's going to be something to watch over the next month of if they can stay in it. You know, as Mets fans, we we in no way can relate to having a shaky bullpen. I say that to make you laugh. The <laughs> Mets bullpen is dreadful. So yeah, we know the feeling. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, uh, meet Michael Cohen from Bentonville. Hello, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, oh yeah, we've been talking managers, and just before I, I, I said, you know, good players render managers inconsequential. My question to you <laughs> is, how's the fan relationship going with Joe Madden? Oh yeah, that's you know that is a great question, and I would say as a fan. Um, this season, there have been a few head-scratching moments um, with some of Madden's decisions around, I think, actually, like pitchers. Uh, he's had some games where he has pulled the starting pitchers have been doing quite well. There was a game I was at where Kyle Hendricks was pitching a phenomenal game. Uh, they were winning, and, you know, he pulled them in what sometimes seems like an abundance of caution, and when you don't have the bullpen – you know, I know you want to preserve your, your starting rotation, of course, and sometimes, you know, they're gassed, they have to come out. But 
I think mm-hmm. that's been a, a little bit of source of a frustration with Madden is, you know, when he's tinkering with the pitching in that way, when they're, they're doing well and you don't have a sure thing coming up behind the starting pitching, it's tough to see, you know, especially when a game gets lost because of that. On the flip side, I think, you know, Madden is kind of famous for tinkering, even with things like the, um, you know, the batting order. And that can sometimes feel like it's coming out of nowhere, but then he'll hit on something that really works. Right now I think uh, Jason Hayward is our leadoff, and he's doing really well there. So I I think it's, you know, uh, Madden's methods have obviously been successful in the past, so he's got more of a long leash than perhaps a manager without that track record would have making some of those decisions. Um, And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this season ends because I think that will sort of be a big referendum on on Madden and and whether or not – I think his contract is up uh, this year. So, um, you know, it's a lot of – like I said, he has a long leash, I think, even with fans. And – but a lot of it is just going to depend on the results of this season, quite frankly. All right. Uh, Megan, we also have uh, Mets Daddy, a.k.a. John. Only way to introduce him. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, with, you know, as, as we were talking about the Mets team, one of the things uh, I had talking about was, uh, for example, the breakout of Rosario. And I know during the chat, our chat, Chad talked about J.D. Davis um, hitting much better than I had been expected. Um, what's the one thing that has been either overlooked or, say, the most pleasant surprise from a Cubs fan perspective about this team that with them coming into City Field, um, who's that player that I may not look at otherwise and go, oh, I, I don't I don't want this player at the plate? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, I actually would say... <laughs> Uh, um, I think, well, I, I mentioned before um, Nick Cassianos, who is, uh, he's new, and I, I'm even forgetting, I think he's playing one of the outfield positions. He's um, he's just been hitting really well, and has been he didn't hit as well when he was playing for Detroit, apparently. So it's been interesting to see him kind of come alive. I think that's been a really nice surprise. And, of course, you know, it's always a surprise when someone new comes onto the team. But um, he's, he seems to be doing really well. And also, um, and, you know, I'm not I, – I don't know the, the numbers, but just from watching the games, I think I can say with fair confidence that Jason Hayward is doing really well as, as well. And um, he can also, you know, have some times where he's cold. So um, he's been leading off and doing quite well, so I would say he's someone to look for offensively. And also Anthony Rizzo, has a, he had a tough period where he wasn't getting um, a lot of hits, but that has sort of ended, and now, he, of course, he might not be ready to play, but if he is, he's been really hot offensively. So, I mean, he's sort of – you always look out for Rizzo, I'd say, but especially in the past couple of weeks, he's come alive again. So that's my hope that he continues. 
And uh, Megan, thank you for coming on and debriefing us about the Cubs. It's it's always fun when the Mets play the Cubs. They used to have a a bigger bigger rivalry when alignment uh, uh, before it shifted, but you know it's still always nice, especially when we're in the thick of these uh, these pennant races. It makes it even more fun. So thank you for coming on, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat with everyone, and um, it'll be a great series. I can't wait to watch it. Same here, and uh, give my best to Tim. I will. All right, thanks. All right, later. Have a good one, guys. Bye. So, guys, um, before we shift to the, the historical part of our journey, is there anything, and I'll start with you, Rich, that you want to shore up before we leave the modern day? Well, you know, I, I think um, open this one up for comment. You know, the Mets, we, we've talked about how they're not going outside the organization for reinforcements, but they still have, you know, some opportunities to upgrade the roster and what is available in-house, Brandon Nimmo, Jed Lowry. And I guess the feeling I'd like to, what I'd like to get from this group is, how confident are we that A, we will see these guys, and B, what we might get from them going down the stretch? Um, you know, Nimmo, they say it was a planned day off yesterday. Okay. I guess he played today, had a couple of hits. That's great. Um, is he going to be major league ready when he comes on the field? I, I certainly hope so. And Lowry, I, I've lost track of his rehab. I don't know where he is with it. I know he was uh, he was in, in St. Lucie. Um, I haven't heard, and somebody please enlighten me, is the plan for him to progress, you know, go to AA, AAA? Um, is he progressing well? I, I don't know. There's been a dearth of information as far as I could tell around Lowry. So what do you guys think? I have no idea. Next Daddy, do you have any idea? I think Lowry played the field today. I have been joking for about a week now that the Jed Lowry rehab experience uh, reeks of those old David Wright ones where, you know, it's like, oh, look, David Wright's in St. Lucie. Hey, he had a day off. Oh, he only played two innings in the field. I don't know how real this is when it comes to Jed Lowry. Um, part of me thinks they rushed him out there because the minor league season is ending in, I think it's September 2nd or 3rd this year. I don't remember the exact date, but it's that, always that memorial, uh, that Labor Day uh, weekend. The uh, minor league season usually ends. I honestly don't know how real this is with Jed Lowry. Um and honestly, to me, he's a non-entity. I don't even consider him uh, to be relevant. And honestly, when you get, honestly, you know, if you get Nimmo back, who, from what reports had been, um, they think he'll be able to come up in September. Um, when he comes up, you know, let's assume he's the center fielder. Um are you really in a hurry to bench Joe Panic? You know, because you could put Jeff McNeil at third base. You know, I, 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 when Larry comes back, I, you know, and this is one, this is one of those comments that come back and shoot you in the foot. 
I don't know how much of a help he would be to this team. Um, you know, because you have Joe Panic who's playing well. Uh, you have Brandon Nimmo uh, out there, um, who's a significantly better player. Um, but the most encouraging sign that, you know, I think I saw say that Nimmo was um, and he's been playing a little bit more consistently. Um, I think in the mix get Nimmo back, significantly different team, much improved. Um, especially if they do the right things here and there. I mean, Nimmo, say what you want, Nimmo is the guy, the one guy on this team who can get on base at will. Uh, he's the guy. You know, when we talk about the energy level of Pete Alonso, Pete Alonso looks lethargic com- compared to Brandon Nimmo, who spent the first base on a walk or a hit by pitch. You know, and, and you know what? As the season, as this sort of run, the bets are on, uh, starts to wind down and guys maybe start getting tired, getting someone as energetic as Brandon Nimmo back on the scene, maybe it's like this big boost to everyone, you know, like this rah, 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 you know, guy coming in. Um, I, I think if they get Nimmo back, the conversation we have about this team changes. Then again, Nimmo had a rehab assignment not too long ago, and he had to shut it back down, even though he had ramped it up. Um I think the Mets are in the, and this is what makes the decision on pass on Billy Hamilton all the worse. You can't count on these guys. You can't count on someone with a bulging disc in his neck. You can't count on a guy who has. I, I can't even. I, can, does anyone remember the first injury Jen Lowry had? I mean, I, these these. I see them as these guys would be nice to have. I just don't know that we can count on any of them returning, even though Nimmo has been playing consistently now and Lowry finally set foot in the field. Mike, you know, I hate the idea of the cavalry. It just reminds me too much of 2009. 2009. Wow. Nice comparison. Uh, Interesting comparison, now that I think about it. But I can't add much more. Uh, I think Brandon Nemo, or Nemo, I should say, I always make that mistake, guilty as charged. Uh, he can help. You know, he's coming back from a bulging disc, so it's always a question, questionable thing. But uh, he can certainly help, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. But we certainly need continued help out of McNeil and J.D. Davis in order to keep this thing moving forward. Uh, Larry, I think he's in West in Key West with Bigfoot or something. Huh? I don't I don't believe that myth. He's not around. He doesn't exist. <laughs> I love this running joke on Twitter, guys, that Jed Lowry doesn't exist. Like not that he's dead, he just doesn't exist. That it's it it never happened. It's one of those things that we're trying to pretend uh uh you know it was was a race was a race from the internet, if you will. Um, anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. Uh, let's go to another pleasant part of the internet, uh, the UltimateMets.com uniform numbers, uh, originally put together by John Springer. Um, 
you guys, this is another underwhelming list, and I have to say, and I'll start with you, Rich. Rick Reed, I think, wins the, the deal. Yeah, Rick Reed is a good one for number 35. You know, Rick Reed was like a poor man's Greg Maddox. You know, he, he didn't throw real hard. Uh, certainly wasn't nearly as successful as Greg Maddox, but he had that similar pitching style, you know, trying to nibble on the corners. And he, and he did well at the Mets. And the thing about Rick Reed is he crossed picket line. And um, and I know that he was shunned by his teammates for that. Uh, so that's one thing that he stands out for. But I remember Rick Reed coming down the stretch in 1999 when the Mets were kind of in a similar situation, um, 99, and, and they ended up getting in, you know, in, in the wild card back when there was only one wild card. And Reed pitched very well. He had some really important games. I remember the second to last game of the season against the Pirates. Um, he pitched, I believe, a complete game. I think he also hit a home run in that game. So Rick Reed had some moments for the Mets. Um, I believe they traded him in 2001 to Minnesota for Marcus Lawton um, when they were done with him. But, you know, Rick Reed, solid couple of years with the Mets, kind of a working man's kind of a guy. Um, and then the other 35 I'll turn to here is Dylan G. Um, you know, on some very not good Mets teams, Dylan G was a very serviceable right-handed pitcher. You know, he was opening day starter in 2014. And uh, unfortunately for Dylan, you know, he had the thoracic outlet syndrome, and um, and he and his career was cut short. Remember, he, he left the game, um, and he said he had, you know, a numbness in his fingers, and it turned out to be TOS. And uh, so you, you always feel bad for a guy like that who went down. His career was cut, you know, cut way short. He tried to come back, never really made it. So, uh, yeah, Rick Reed, uh, Dylan G. And then one, I'll say one more. Um, I always liked Mike Jacobs. I remember, you know, we all remember in 2005 when he came up and he did so, so well in that short period of time. And then, of course, he killed the Mets as a Marlin. And then the Mets brought him back, I believe, it was 2010. And um, he, you know, he, he just wasn't, he didn't do what we wanted him to do. But um, Mike Jacobs, wow, what a splash he made when he first came up, right? Yeah, you know, the more they got Delgado. Next, Eddie, go ahead with it. Yeah, you know, you think about it, Mike Jacobs going berserk. Um, got him climbed to be a big enough piece um, to make that trade for Delgado. He doesn't go up like that. Maybe they don't get Delgado, um, which makes him all the more important. Um, with the 35, I, I, I think back to that 2015, because initially it was Dylan, who was 35. And, you know, as you were just saying, life is cruel. Because Dylan G was a very good man uh, for a number of years on bad teams, and he always had these highlights. Like um, I can't remember what was it—a ten-strikeout game against the Yankees in the stadium, the first time the Mets ever won uh, a series at the stadium. Um, he had a couple of misses on no hitters. I mean, he was that guy who got every ounce out of who he was. Um, but, you know, and I remember him tweeting out um, how much he was rooting for the Mets to win that World Series because those were his guys. And 
you go back to you want to talk TOS too. You go back to Matt Harvey and Matt Harvey back in 2013. We talked about how Bill and G was the one guy in that clubhouse who really taught him how to pitch, and the impact Bill and G would have on pitchers like Harvey and DeGrom um, as they took that mantle. Um, com- you know, combining the things they learned from G and having drive. Uh, to become these aces that would take the 2015 World Series. Um, but fast-forwarding um, in that 2015 season, um, Logan Barrett, another 35. Uh, interesting story with him. Uh, the Mets had exposed him to Rule 5, uh, had been taken, um, passed through waivers that claimed by the Texas Rangers, I think, from the Baltimore Orioles. They may have that order in reverse. Um Mets needed a pitcher and claim uh, Logan Verrett to come back to the Mets organization. Um, his start in Colorado was huge for two reasons. Uh, the first, they won a game. Um, as you know, they were start, as that was around the time they were starting to put the Nationals away, but it took that Harvey drama and it made it more of a footnote. Um, because Logan Verrett pitched so well in his spot in the rotation, and then the way he pitched well, it allowed the Mets to ease off of DeGrom down the stretch. And then we saw how well Harvey and DeGrom pitched in that postseason. Arguably, um, we may not have seen DeGrom almost single-handedly win the NLCS. We would not have seen Harvey um, pitch in the NLCS the way he did in, in Game 5 of the World Series the way he did, if they didn't get that little extra rest, that Logan Verrett needs Logan Verrett and stepping up the way he did, getting them the rest to be just to allow them to take that deep breath and be great in the post. Yeah, you know, I have to say that of this list, Dylan Jean, Rick Reed probably make number 35. I mean, there's names like John Matlack here, but John Matlack is not really remembered for number 35, and he only wore it for one month in uh, 1970. Uh, Mike, here's my question. This is, and I think I confirmed this already, but this is the Doc Ellis that was a Met in 1979, right? Say that again? I said this was the Doc Ellis that was a Met in 1979 wearing number 35, right? <laughs> that is the one and only Doc Ellis of 1979. Yeah, Doc Ellis. Doc Ellis was a very uh, colorful character back in the day uh, for various teams, amongst them the Yankees. Uh, interesting story behind him, to say the least. Uh, Roy Steger is somebody who sticks out to me. He was the youngster. He only wore the number this one season, but uh, he was the youngster who was supposed to take over for Wayne Garrett at third base. So I always, you know. Uh, remember him fondly, and uh, Ed Lynch, I, I will always say, is one of the most underrated pitchers, Met pitchers ever, and Randy Jones, he was with the Met for two seasons, and he, he he reminds me of many conversations we have today, how the Mets obtained players way too late, and in past their glory years, Randy Jones won a Cy Young uh, while with the Padres. Uh, and on that note, Joe Sambito is uh, an acquisition I remember well because in 85 and 86, 
Uh, they were just stacking talent everywhere on the bench and in the bullpen. And all these players that were starters and, and important players for other teams all of a sudden were gravitating towards flushing. Sanbito was a, a formidable closer for the Astros back in the day. And here he is, you know, he's our sixth, seventh guy in the bullpen. So uh, that just speaks to the dominance of, of that that team in that era. And Billy Bean is always an interesting character. Were it not, you know, if he were only uh, as good a ball player as he, as he is a GM, uh, the Mets might have had something back in the day. You know, it's interesting. You also have John Gibbons' name here, Orlando Mercado, uh, Kenny Greer, just some classic random Met names, and Jose Offerman, of course. Um, Jose Offerman, yeah, one of the most miserable always... dispositions in all of baseball, right? <laughs> see, Mets daddy, a.k.a. John, let's see if you can relate to this at all. I feel like Jose Offerman was somebody that never was a Met except for on the video games when you would just need that extra body, so you would trade for Jose Offerman, and it wasn't until 19, it wasn't until 2005 that he actually was a Met. There's always those guys like Offerman who you're actually just waiting for them to become a Met uh, at a certain point in time. Uh, uh, Gary Sheffield was one of those guys. How many years have you been waiting for Gary Sheffield, and when does Gary Sheffield become a Met? when he's completely washed up. Um, on the Offerman, I remember, do you guys remember when Jay Moore had a late-night talk show on ESPN? I remember, the only thing I remember about that overly forgettable show um, was his joke, uh, Offerman, as he's selling at the scorecard, OFFE Fox. <laughs> I can't for the life of me remember that show. And are you sure was it was it the the show where he actually was it a talk show? Or I think it was a talk show. Was it his agent show that Jay Moore had? No, it wasn't the agent show. It was actually like this attempt at a sports comedy show. Okay. It was it, Jay Moore. Let me put it like this. I think that show, the NFL forced ESPN to cancel, lasted three times. Oh, well, I'll have to take your word for it or look it up on IMDb at some point. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to a Netsian podcast, and we're so thankful for you to have done so. Uh, that will do it for number 35. I don't believe we missed anybody unless somebody didn't uh, pay homage to, to Lance Broadway enough. Uh, Rich, do you want to you you run with that Lance Broadway uh, I'm going to take a diversionary run, and I'm going to go to Joe Smith. Um, Joe Smith is still active, as we know. And um, what a nice side-arming right-hander he was. You know, remember when uh, he came up? I believe it was 2006 when he came up. And uh, I'm looking here. So when Joe Smith came up, what I remember about him was he used to take the subway to Shea Stadium, 2007. He used to take the subway to Shea Stadium. And he used to talk about that, you know, just a, a down-to-earth, you know, kind of a nice guy and a very effective side-arming right-hander. I believe he went in the winter before the 2009 season when, uh, when they, they picked up uh, Putts and a couple other people. I think he was in that deal. 
And uh, oh, but Joe Smith is he's, oh my no what, uh, what an awful JJ Putz what an awful pickup that's uh, like that's like post traumatic Mets disorder right there. But um, oh my god! But and I'm uh, sorry to bring that up it is painful. But um, but Joe Smith you what know young What's that? No, it's just the only direction the Joe Smith talk can ever go. Like, that's what I remember was he was the best bullpen piece they had in 2008, and, of course, he was going to be in the trade. Right, right. And, you know, his wife is a is a football a sideline reporter. Um, I remember seeing that somewhere where she, um, she does, like, major college football uh, or even some NFL now. And the name escapes me, but, but his wife is um, – is a football sideline reporter and Joe Smith. He, I, I just really liked him, and he was available a couple of times you know, as a free agent or as a, a trade deadline piece. And I always wanted the Mets to try to grab him back, but they never did. Well, you got me looking up uh, Allie LaForce. That's right, Allie LaForce, and she does basketball. She does football. She's all yeah, over. She's, she's all over the NBA on TNT. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Speaking and she of always wanted him to come back, the one guy who came back to the Mets from that deal, the Mets traded Jason uh, Vargas away in that deal. That is correct. Uh, oh, re- oh my God, really? Yeah, they traded Car. I remember they traded Carp and the Joseph Smith um, and everyone's favorite Aaron Heilman at that deal. Yes, Aaron Heilman went away because he had to. Let's face it, he had to. Oh God! Well, this is this is what happens when you go down the uniform list. And uh, number thirty-six, uh, I, I I know who this is already going to be, so that'll bring a lot of smiles among some of the uh, the elder statesmen of uh, of Mexican uh, blood. And without further ado, let us wrap up. I think it's time for this week of Mets baseball to end. Uh, final words. We are going to go uh, around the horn, and we're going to start with uh, Mets Daddy, a.k.a. John. And before you give our last word, John, go ahead with your shameless plug. Shameless plug, MetsDaddy.com, MetsVarizeOnline.com, and uh, at MetsDaddy2013 for the Twitter reply. Um, Rather than focus on the negative, Pete Alonzo has been more than anyone could have imagined he'd be. Um, not only has he broke Cody Bellinger's uh, National League rookie record, um, he tied Todd Hudley and Carlos Beltran for the single season mark in Mets history. Um, what some have overlooked is both Beltran and Hudley were switch hitters, which means Pete Alonso now has the single season record for Mets right-handed batter. Why this is even like a bigger deal? The record was previously held by Mike Piazza. Anytime you're in the conversation with Mike Piazza, a Hall of Famer, and Carlos Beltran, who may actually be the third player in history to wear a best cap in the Hall of Fame, when you're in that conversation, that, that's just an, an incredible place to be, and let's just hope this is just the tip of the iceberg for this kid, who I think every Mets fan has fallen in love with this. 
I appreciate you bringing Pete Alonzo up, of course. He, uh, unfortunately, it had to come in uh, what it could have been an amazing hit, but unfortunately it came in a loss, and so it kind of got overshadowed uh, during a pennant race. But I appreciate you bringing Pete Alonzo up because that is a humongous moment in that history. And hopefully the next one, we're, you know, when he breaks the record, we're talking about it in a Mets win. Mike, what's your last word? Let's go Cyclones. <laughs> With this evening's victory, the Cyclones forge a three-way tie for first place in the McNamara division. Uh, eight games left in the season. And, uh, you know, as a Brooklynite, I'm proud of my little boys. And uh, let's go Cyclones. Lots of fun. I have, you know, this is my diversionary team away from the Mets. And, uh, this team brings me so much joy and pride. They are a lot of fun out there on Coney Island. Rich, how about you? Um, I'll go with it's time. It's time for the Mets to, this is it, guys. You know, if the Cubs come in here and take the series or, God forbid, sweep them, they're done. They're they're basically done. So it's time. You, you had a bad start. You had a great six weeks. Wonderful. Now it's time to, to tell us on the field, which are you? Are you the first, you know, four-month team or are you the last six-week team? Don't know. Um, and it's time for the Mets to show who they really are. It's like that old, uh, that old game show, you know, will the real New York Mets please stand up? And we're going to find out. We're going to find out in the next 12 games. I'll agree with what Mike said earlier. You know, this, this, these next 12 games will, will dictate it all. And so, all right, guys, if you want to be taken seriously, you want to say you're one of the big boys and – you know, Mickey was saying earlier in the season, well, we have to do this with the rotation because when we get to the playoffs, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, fine. You, could, you talked all that. You talked a great game. Now it's time to prove it on the field, and we'll all be watching. That it is. It is time. And I'm going to go uh, a little bit off next topic, uh, but that is uh, my dad's birthday today. Uh, he would have been 75, and I'm uh, Mike, I appreciate you bringing up the Cyclones because the, the picture that I tweeted out of my dad and I was from a Cyclones game a few years back and uh, just wanted to uh, give a shout-out and a happy birthday to my father. Uh, thank you for everything you did for me. Uh, everybody, without further ado, that does it for a Metsian podcast, uh, episode number 35. John of Mets Caddy, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciated. My pleasure is all mine. And uh, Rich, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us tonight. Sam, thank you, and thanks for doing a great job in the control in the control room. And, and you know, I definitely had a little bit of help when I was having some technical difficulties. Excuse me. Uh, from Michael Colant, also on the board at uh, certain points throughout tonight. Mike, thank you, as always, for joining us. Always happy to help our Metsian Podcast CEO. <laughs> and I will hand it over to Rich for the only way to end this. And we need it more than ever, guys. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's Mets. go Mets. Mets. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye now. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.